The children are dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. And if, as I said last week, if you're not familiar where that is, if you start at Matthew and go back two books, you'll be at Zechariah. Zechariah, chapter 1. The notes are in the bulletin, if you want to follow along. And this morning, we will begin our second part, our introduction to the book of Zechariah. Last week, we, we gave a sort of historic overview of the setting, and we dipped our toes in the first six verses. This week, we'll do a little bit more of that and hopefully finish off the first six verses. So let's begin our time by reading Zechariah 1, 1 to 6. Zechariah 1, 1 to 6. In the eighth month and second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not pay attention or hear me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now, I recognize that the book of Zechariah, the minor prophets in general, probably Zechariah in specific, are some of the least known in this area of Israel's history is some of the least familiar to Christians. We are dealing with a time period known as the post-exile, the return from exile. And so if you pull out the green sheet to the side with the map, we're just going to briefly touch over some of Israel's history. And this is important because the book takes great pains at three different times to specify with great particularity when this occurred. The living God wants us to know this happened, and he wants us to know when. Notice that in verse 1-1, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. And then down in 1-7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius. And so a brief overview of Israel's history. Um, God calls Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldees and promises to make a great nation of him, to give him a, a seed and a land and a blessing, and that's around the year 2100 B.C. And as Jacob and his sons moved down to Egypt, about 125 years later, and then the Exodus, as, as Israel is birthed from Egypt, a nation occurs about 1446 B.C. And Israel enters into the land. And David becomes king in around 1000 B.C. So, so about 2100, God calls Abraham. 1100 years later, David becomes king. And the reason this is important is if you've read through, if you've ever done one of these Bible reading plans, you are aware of just how many pages, how many verses Paragraph after paragraph are set up telling Israel how to live in the land, how to function as a nation. We, we call it the law, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Governing Israel's civic life, its ceremonial life, its moral life. 
page after page of this is how it's supposed to work. This is how it's supposed to function. These are the things I'm going to do for you when you're being faithful. And there's this tremendous anticlimax after the story builds up and God brings him and he brings him and he raises up a deliverer and they wander around the wilderness and they take possession of the land and Jericho falls. There's only this brief window where things even remotely seem to operate as they should. And that's under David's rule. Maybe the beginning of Solomon's rule. 40, 50, 60 years at most. All this setup, all these pages, this entire law. And at most, it sort of works for about 40 to 60 years. And then Solomon has a son who, because of his youth and rashness, um, is harsh with the people and the kingdom divides which is something the law did not um, govern. This is clearly something's wrong. We're off program now. And so as early as the fourth king of Israel, things are clearly wrong, and, and they don't get better. Um, the, the northern ten tribes are apostate. All of their kings are bad, and God sends them prophets, and he sends them prophets, and he sends them prophets, and they don't listen and they worship foreign gods, and they offer their children up on altars. And again, you're, you're an Israelite. You're reading your Old Testament. You're looking around you. The kingdom's divided in half, and there's rampant idolatry in the north, and the south isn't much better. And God sends the prophets to warn the north, and they don't listen. And so in 722 B.C., Shalmaneser V, it should be the fifth, not the fourth, of Assyria, gobbles up the ten northern tribes and takes them into exile. The Samaritans of Jesus' day, they, they're the remnant that have intermarried. Just to sort of help you figure out what's going on in the New Testament, the Samaritans are the, are the sort of half-Jewish remnant of those few people who were left behind who intermarried. And you'd think that the South would learn their lesson, that they'd repent, the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, even though most of their kings were bad. There were brief periods of revival. But no, they don't listen. They don't. And so God sends some prophets warning them. They don't listen. And so in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in in three waves, does a siege around Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem and the temple, takes the people captive to Babylon. And, and this is cataclysmically devastating for Israel, for, for a number of reasons. If, if someone were to invade our country and take us captive, it would be difficult on a personal level um, being ripped away from where you grew up, being ripped away from your loved ones. But for Israel, so many of God's promises are geographically specific. God's covenant with David, your throne in Jerusalem will not lack a man, that the throne can't be willy-nilly anywhere else. There has to be a Davidite in Jerusalem on David's throne for, for God to keep his word. And, and you go through the Old Testament, the land divisions. There's about 20 chapters of land divisions in the middle of Joshua. This, this, this matters. This land is important. And so when Israel is taken from the land, it's not just the, the discouragement and the sorrow of, of being ripped away and having your possessions taken from you and seeing your loved ones and your family killed. It, it's not the pain of being in a stranger in a strange land. It's, it's also... The difficulty of wrestling with the, the apparent breaking of God's promises. I mean, they, they wrestled with this. You read the book of Lamentations. How can God keep his word? Have we sinned? Have we been so rebellious and so evil there is no turning back? Is he finally done with us? 
And the glorious answer was no. God was angry for but a little while, but he remembered the promises that he made to the fathers. And so after 70 years in captivity in Babylon, he stirs up the heart of Cyrus. And Cyrus, in 536 BC, issues a proclamation commanding the Israelites to return to their land, giving them money and supplies to rebuild their temple. This is good news. I mean, it's, it's amazing news. I mean, think about this. Israel, numerous times, has been gobbled up, completely dissolved into a foreign nation, only to come back to the same land with the same language and the same religion. Babylon is no more. They were conquered by the Medo-Persians. But Israel is back on the land. And as great as God's faithfulness was, we read in Ezra, only 50,000 Israelites obeyed. Only 50,000 Israelites, at least initially, come out of Babylon, or what is now Assyria. After God's remarkable faithfulness, most of them had become at home. The, the strange foreign land had become home. They didn't go back. And, and so they returned, 50,000 of them, and they begin to rebuild the temple. And then as soon as difficulties arise, as soon as it becomes problematic, as soon as opposition is there, they stop. And this is the period of the post-exile. This is what six books of the Bible focus on. This time period, this little remnant, this little holdover of Israel in a ruined city, discouraged people. And will they be faithful? And God's being faithful to them, stirring them up to rebuild. This is a very important period of Israel's history. And like I said, it's, it's not all that well known. I think part of the reason for that is at least three reasons why we don't focus on this area of Israel's history, even though, as I said, there's six books of the Bible devoted to it. Let's, let's face it. This time in Israel's history, Israel is smaller. It's weaker. There's, there's less grand storytelling. There aren't the David and Goliath stories. There was a time when Israel was the, the jewel of that area of the world. The queen of Sheba came and marveled at the temple and at Solomon's wisdom. Israel was a mighty power. Other nations doing them homage. And there are great stories in, in the Old Testament about David becoming king and all the intrigue between him and Saul and and, and that, that's not taking place here. This is, this is the underdog now. This is the remnant. Another reason I think why we sometimes don't unpack and study this area of Israel's history is because of how negatively the New Testament portrays the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. And after all, the people we're going to see here, they are going to become the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and given how negative Jesus is in his interaction with them, I think sometimes we can sort of read that back into them and, and take a little less interest. But probably the biggest reason why I think this area of the Old Testament is so unknown is because of the tremendous emphasis on building the temple, which is something we just don't resonate with. Now, the church is multinational, transgeographic. What I mean by that is the church is not... Christ's church is not governed by boundaries of race. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, in the body of Christ. And it's transnational. There is no geographic center for the church. Wherever believers gather together in the name of Christ, wherever local churches are, there his body is. 
And so we're so used to that that it can sometimes be hard to wrap our heads around the notion of a covenant that God made with Israel that is very geographically centered and a worship system that centers around a physical building you can put your hands on and touch. And so much of what's written in these latter prophets after the return from Babylon is focused on the rebuilding of the temple. And we can wonder, why on earth is that such a big deal? Especially as this rebuilt temple is going to be kind of rinky-dink compared to what Solomon built. I mean, sure, Herod's going to come along and do a rebuilding project and try to beef it up, but the Shekinah glory never returns. You'll never marvel Herod's temple. And yet, if you turn back a page to Haggai 2, and you remember Haggai is the other prophet that God raises up to, to encourage Israel in this time period. A remarkable prophecy is made about this rinky-dink little temple. Chapter 2 of Haggai, verse 1. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And what God is recognizing is that in comparison, there were some Jews who had been taken captive into Babylon who could remember Solomon's temple and all of its glory. And even though now all they've got is the foundation in front of them that they're beginning to work on, you can already tell how much less impressive, how much smaller, how much more feeble this temple will be than Solomon's. The Lord acknowledges as much. And then he says, but be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Pause there. God's visible presence, the Shekinah glory that filled the Holy of Holies, never returned to this temple, and yet God assures them, even though there is no blinding light of my presence, I am with you in your midst. Make no mistake. <coughs> Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now look at this in verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, turn back to Zechariah. That is a remarkable prediction. What God has just promised is the glory of this temple that they're rebuilding, the one that I've called rinky-dink now a number of times. The glory of this temple will exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. I want you to stop and think. How can that be the case? Because this helps, I think, to explain why there is such an emphasis in, in Haggai and in Zechariah and in Ezra and in Nehemiah on rebuilding the temple. It, it's hard to see it if we think, well, this temple is never going to amount to much. But here, Haggai has promised that its latter glory will exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. How, how can that be? There never was a return of the Shekinah glory. It never would equal it in size, in stature, in gold ornamentation. But it would receive one honor that Solomon's temple never received. 
And I think this is sort of the key to understanding the importance of this temple that they're building. Because one day, 400 years later, a Jewish carpenter would show up, and he would make a whip out of cords. And he would have great zeal for this house, this rinky-dink little temple. And he would be filled with indignation at the way his father's house was being treated, and he would cleanse it and purify it. And I, and I submit to you that in that act, when, when the Son of God incarnate came and took possession, took control of this temple, it received a greater glory and a greater honor than all of the Shekinah glory and all of the gold and all the ornamentation of Solomon's temple. Never in Solomon's temple did the Son of God say, this is my Father's house and you will treat it with respect. So this temple is being made in preparation for the one to whom it belonged. It, it needs to be built because there needs to be a house for the Son of Man to arrive at. Yes, he says he is God's temple. And so this, this line of temple, this, this notion of temple moves and, and moves along. It starts with a building and it, then Jesus says it's his body and then the New Testament says the church is his temple. But it is a crucial step. There must be a house ready for the Son of Man to show up and cleanse, to claim as his father's. And so, the emphasis here. It's also the emphasis on faithfulness. We oftentimes think of faith as something that just exists in our heart. But faith is seen by actions. And so, God sends Haggai and he calls the people to repent and he sends Zechariah and he calls the people to repent and it's not some abstract sorrow. There's things for them to do. There's a covenant for them to keep. Not that they're saved by keeping the covenant, but they demonstrate their faithfulness as they endeavor by faith to obey the Mosaic law. And so it's important for the people that they engage in the rebuilding project as an evidence of their faithfulness. And that's why this study is important. But, but more than that, that, the book of Zechariah, while it does focus on the rebuilding of the temple, has some other themes. Its date is given to us in 1-1 and 7-1, and it's 520 B.C. Zechariah is going to be the penultimate prophet of the Old Testament. After him only comes Malachi, and then 400 years of prophetic silence until John the Baptist arrives on the scene. The main message of the book, I will redeem and restore you. I will redeem and restore you. And you'll see again and again, that's what God says to his people. The opening verses are a call to repentance, but let's take a look at some of the themes of Zechariah. Um, surprisingly, perhaps, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is one of the central themes in this book. He's on nearly every page. Last week, we looked at how he is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Those references to the angel of the Lord, if you, if you follow them through, the angel of the Lord is spoken to as God, speaks as God, receives worship. And as best as we can um, put it together, the angel of the Lord, when you see the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He never is spoken of again after the incarnation. And so, unless there's a fourth member of the Trinity, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he shows up in chapter 1. Verse 12, then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? But not only that, jump, jump ahead to chapter 9. 
This, this book, especially in its latter half, will deal with the Messiah's coming, his rejection, and his triumph. And, and you're going to read some passages that you're very familiar with, I am sure. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we all know that this is the text that announces Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Predicted here because the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming are big in the scope of this book. Jump ahead a little further to chapter 11. Another key quotation and, and a key... Event in Jesus' life, verses 11, verses 12 to 13, chapter 11. Then I said, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. What's that talking about? That's the betrayal, right? That's, that's when J Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and afterwards, regretting it, he, he threw the money and, and the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees wouldn't take it, so they bought a potter's field with it. And then, one of my favorite sections in this book, chapter 12, another prediction of the Christ, and here a prediction of the Lord's return savingly to Israel is in verse 10. Now understand, this is over 400 years before Jesus, this is before crucifixion is practiced, before the Roman Empire. Verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn crucifixion, the piercing of God. There's even some overlap. Is this the Lord or is this his anointed? Yes. They look on me, on him whom they've pierced. So this book has in view Christ's coming, his betrayal, his crucifixion, and ultimately his triumph. In chapter 14, we, we see some of that. As the Lord returns to fight for his people, by the way, you'll notice in the first verses and as you read through this book that the dominant name for God in this book is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. There's a reason for that. It gives encouragement to an enfeebled people, these mighty world powers, one after another, taking possession of them. First the Babylonians, then the Medo-Persians. It's going to be the Romans sooner than later. And yet God reminds them, over 53 times in this book, he is the Lord of armies. He is the one with power. He is the one who is the king of kings. He is the one who raises up a ruler and pushes another down. And it is as easy as him thinking it that he can stir up the heart of Cyrus to cause them to return. But this Lord of hosts will come and fight for his people. And by the way, last week we looked at the fact that God will only ever bless a repentant people well, we see in, in chapter 12, verse 10, we just saw how God first brings the people to contrition, brings the people to repentance. This is some future time envisioned in 12:10 where Israel will get it. 
They will get what they did to their Messiah. They will get the great mistake they made and they will mourn. And in that position of contrition and repentance because a broken heart, broken spirit and a contrite heart God will not despise, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies comes and fights. Chapter 14, verse one. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you and divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east. Just, just as a point in reference, when Jesus ascended into heaven at the end of, of his ministry on earth, in the first chapter of Acts, from where did he ascend? Mount of Olives. The angels who speak to the disciples say what? Just as he ascended, he's going to return. Touchdown point for the returning Jesus Christ, the Mount of Olives. The Bible fits together so wonderfully. He will come and, verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his, whole, his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hanel. And, and so what we get in chapter 14 is this kingdom that was predicted in the Old Testament, this glorious state where Israel is functioning properly, where they're being faithful and all the blessings that God would pour out of them it is coming. The kingdom is coming. When the disciples asked Jesus in Acts 1, is it, Lord, is it now? Is it now that you're going to bring the kingdom? That's what the end of Zechariah is talking about. It isn't one big anticlimax. They just need the right king, the Messiah. So it's a book about Jesus Christ. It's a book of encouragement. Go back to chapter 1. And even though in our first two weeks we're looking at the opening call to repentance, the overwhelming tenor of the book is one of encouragement. This is a weak people. This is a broken people. This is a remnant. And so again and again and again, God offers encouraging words. In verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words. The angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said, cry aloud. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Comforting words. Chapter 2, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come. 
And I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. And in chapter 3, he promises to remove their sin. In one day, verse Nine, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Chapter 7, or actually chapter 8, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will save my people from the east country and from the west, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Verse 11, but, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. The heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not. Let your hands be strong. You get this, this emphasis again and again. Don't be afraid, little people. I, I've chosen you. I've remembered you. I've returned to you. I will redeem and restore you. We can look through the rest of the book. And the, and the third big theme of this book is the apocalypse. The last three chapters, and much of the book hints at, and the last three chapters focus on what we might call the battle of Armageddon or end times events. Look at how chapter 12 picks up. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. All the nations of the world gathering against Jerusalem. And we see ultimately the Messiah being received by his people as God pours out a spirit of grace on Israel and that last moment in the 12th hour at the right time they get it what did we do and they repent and they mourn and they become christians and then the lord shows up and he fights for his people and he ushers in a kingdom that's this book ends you could probably identify other sub themes but i think those three jesus christ words of encouragement to a discouraged people and a focus on, on Israel's glorious messianic future during the times of the apocalypse. So quickly, let's just look at the division of the book. I'm just going to suggest a, a three-part division. Chapters 1 to 6, eight night visions. Eight night visions. Starting in verse 7, um, Zechariah recounts these visions the Lord gave him, and each one, and they're kind of difficult. There's these symbols, and there's usually him and another angel, and the angel of the Lord, and there's a lampstand, or there's some horns, and we'll deal with them week by week. 
Eight night visions, offering encouragement, offering a promise of restoration, and establishing the leadership, establishing Zerubbabel, and establishing Joshua. The Lord has chosen them. And then, in chapter 7 to 8, one question and four answers. The people come to Zechariah with a question. Hey, should we continue to observe the fast? And they get four answers from the Lord, starting in a rebuke, but ultimately promising that their fasting will turn to feasting. And then finally, two burdens, which is the way the final two prophecies of chapters 9 to 14 are introduced. Chapter 9, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. That's the outline. Eight night visions, one question, four answers, two burdens. And so with that overview of the book, we will dive into part two of our study of the first six verses. Now, <clears throat> last week, we looked at the Lord of hosts calls his people to repent. We saw the need for repentance is, is present in verse two, God's anger. Our God is an angry God. He is angry at sin. He's angry at the sin of unbelievers. He is also angry at the sin of his people. That's not the, the final word. That's not the full truth. While he is angry at the sin even of his people, he is loving and longing for his people, and so he calls them to return to him. And it's such a beautiful term. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts in verse 3, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And now we're going to pick up um, the Lord of hosts' appeal. So there's a call to return in verse 3, and then reasons to return, an appeal to return. The Lord pleading with his people to return to him. He's already called them to return through Haggai. There's been some form of revival two months earlier, and either the people slipped back from their former return, or their former return was only partial, and the Lord wants them wholly his. Either way, Zechariah comes, and he calls them to return to him. Return to him. And there's three lessons that these people are to learn, encouraging them to return, to repent, and turn to the living God. We also noted last week that turning to God in faith is, is the same thing as turning from one's wicked deeds. It's the same thing. Turn to the Lord. Turn from your evil deeds. It's all here in this passage. And in verse 4, do not be like your fathers. By the way, you'll notice that term, your fathers, appears four times in this passage. Verse 2, the Lord was angry with your fathers. Verse 4, do not be like your fathers. Verse 5, your fathers, where are they? In verse 6, the Lord says his words, did they not overtake your fathers? There's a contrast here. The first lesson to learn is the lesson of your history. The lesson of your history. Don't be like your fathers, O Israel, the Lord says. Don't be like your fathers. Learn the lesson of your history. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul making the same point reminds us what three quarters of your Bible is for. Oftentimes we can read Israel's history and think, those idiots, those dingbats, why don't they get it? Well, they, they were dingbats, but news bulletins, so are we, right? So are we. And in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul giving us the same lesson to learn. When you read Israel's history, don't do what they did. Sometimes that's the main point of the story. You read a crazy story in Judges. Why is this here? Maybe it's just don't do that. 
1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, Paul's going to go through some of Israel's history and then give some application for the church. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all into the cloud and all passed to the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us we might not desire evil as they did, nor be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. But we must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down. Why do you have an Old Testament? Why the record of those events? They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The, the conclusion is not that let anyone who reads this realize how stupid Israel is. The conclusion is don't for a second pat yourself on the shoulder and say, I wouldn't do that. If that had been me, it would have been different. No, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. The temptations they face, the trials they face, that's what they faced. But for the grace of God, you would do the same. So learn the lesson of history. Point I there. You are not an exception. You are not an exception. The reason why we have so much of Israel's history is to show us what humans are like, what sinful human beings are like, what you and I are like. And if you think you're the exception, not me, I wouldn't do that. Take heed lest you fall. So the Lord God says in Zechariah 1, do not be like your father's. And the fathers thought they could have their cake and eat it too. We'll worship the Lord and, you know, we'll worship Baal a little bit on the side. And, and, and Moses warned them, God is jealous. Joshua warned them, God is jealous. You won't be able to worship the Lord and other gods. No, it'll be okay. We'll get away with it. No, they didn't. And we would do well to take the same warning. If you're here today and you need to return to the Lord, and you think it's okay, it's okay. I can put this down whenever I want. I can put down my sin and walk away from it whenever I want. I'm just going just gonna to stay here a little bit longer. Be warned. That's what the Israelites thought. That's what their fathers thought. Be warned. Do not be like your fathers. You are not an exception. Next, do not mistake God's patience for apathy. Do not mistake God's patience for apathy. God was so very patient with Israel. I told you, every single one of their kings in the north was a bum, was an idolater. And yet God gave them hundreds of years to repent. And sadly, the conclusion they came to when the warnings of destruction came is there's no destruction coming. There's no judgment coming. There isn't a God who sees and judges. And that can be the other temptation. Maybe, maybe God hasn't been disciplining you. In his patience, he's been giving you a chance to return to him. Maybe calamity hasn't fallen. And rather than concluding that God is gracious and kind, we can think, well, I guess there is no judgment. But we're warned in Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing 
the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. It is only God's kindness and his patience that, that delays judgment and discipline. And his word, his call, is return, return, return me. I will return to you. Return. Don't, don't be like your fathers. Return to me. And we can think, well, I've gotten away with it this long. What's a little further? Don't be like the fathers. Next, learn the lesson of your brevity. Learn the lesson of your brevity. God next draws our attention to the brevity, the, the shortness of the life that we have. Verse four. Do not be like your fathers whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from evil ways and from evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, they live forever. God sent the prophets, but the prophets didn't stick around forever. The prophets died and judgment came. And that window of salvation, that call closed. And they were in Babylon. And far too often, God's people learn too late. You remember when Israel sent in the, the 12 spies to spy out Cana, and 10 were bad and two were good, and, and the, the people listened to the 10 bad spies, and, and they, they don't want to go in and take possession of the land. Well, then judgment comes. Okay, you're going to wander around for 40 years. And then, and this is what's so sad, too late, they say, no, no, we'll go. We'll go in. And they go in, and what happens? The Lord isn't with them. They get driven out. And it's just so sad that the people ultimately, but just too late, were, were willing to go in and take possession of the land. God sent prophets, and he sent prophets, and he sent prophets, but one day he stopped sending prophets, and he sent judgment. One day, instead of a prophet showing up, Nebuchadnezzar showed up. Don't mistake God's patience for apathy. Don't mistake God's patience and kindness with you as though he does not care as though he has not provoked at our sin. Learn the lesson of our brevity. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Point one, do not delay. Your time is short. You know, most people who end up in hell don't plan on going to hell. Most people who end up in hell just never get around to it. I've met plenty of people, and I'm sure you've met plenty of people who know their life isn't in order, who know they aren't where they need to be with the Lord, who know things aren't right, and that's something they're going to get around to someday. There's just other stuff they've got to deal with first. And, and God points their attention. Your fathers, where are they? They're not here anymore. They're gone. Our life is, is vapor. It's here and it's gone. It's a grass that rises up and the sun withers it. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says it this way, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I will listen to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And I, just, I just want to pause. You know, maybe there's someone even here today who, who doesn't know the Lord. Or maybe you've come to know the Lord by faith. You've trusted in his son and his death. Be a sacrifice for your sins, but you're not where you need to be, and you're telling yourself that's okay. I'll sometime in the future I'm gonna get right with him. Today, today's the day of salvation. Today, judgment is tarrying. There is no promise for this afternoon. There is no promise that you'll make it to this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or next year. Don't mistake his kindness for apathy. Don't delay. Your time is short. 
and observe the enduring power of God's word. Notice that in verse 6. My words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? You know, and, and the history of, of Israel's history is these prophets come, and the people usually, as it says here, don't listen. They don't pay attention. Frequently, they would mock the prophets. They would kill the prophets, somehow thinking that if they could just make them shut up, then the disaster that was prophesied, the, the sin that needed repenting of would somehow go away. But in every instance, God's word overtook them. And there's a contrast here. The fathers, they still around? No. Are the prophets even still around? No. What's still around? God's word. And so we can look around at what's real and we can touch and be so impressed by the, the nowness of it all. And let's, let's face it, this is an old book. I mean, the newest part is 2,000 years old. And it's got a part of it, two-thirds of it, that we call the old part. It's an old book. And yet Jesus testifies, and again and again and again in God's word, God says, make, make no mistake, this will endure. You won't endure. I won't endure. We are vapor. We're dust. We're here today, gone tomorrow. God's word and what it promises will endure. You can bank on it. And so God is pointing them to the enduring power of his word. Make, make no mistake. What God thinks about sin is true. The salvation that God offers that he reaches out saying, turn to me, turn to me. And I'll turn to you. But I am very angry at sin. It's, it's all there and it's true. And, and this gospel that, that we hear will rise up and judge so many on the day of judgment. So many who have heard God's word, who have sat under Bible teaching, who have read this and for whatever reason never gotten around to it, never listened. It will endure Observe the enduring power of God's word. Isaiah 40, verses six to eight says this. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And finally, point C, learn the lesson of your future. Learn the lesson of your future. Sadly, the tragedy of the story of judgment is that when the people were judged, when judgment came, when they were gobbled up, when they were taken into Babylon, then, then they repented. They didn't hold out in their rebellion. The Lord broke his foes. The Lord broke them. Then they repented, it says, and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. You know, in Philippians 2, promises us that despite all the big words that I hear from some people about it's better to party in hell than to serve in heaven or whatever they're planning on doing, at the final judgment, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. You will, I will, all of our neighbors will, everyone over in the Middle East will give glory and homage to to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Every tongue will confess. Hitler's tongue will confess. Pol Pot's tongue will confess. Everyone you've ever met's tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I, I know that. There's no rebellion that ultimately will not be broken. 
The fathers, they were broken. They confessed this judgment is just. He's done to us what he said. And Philippians 2 promises us that God is highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so when we look to the past and we see the futility of resisting God, we see the pattern again and again and again and again of what happens when we turn away from unfaithfulness, judgment, It should call us to repent. And when we think about our brevity, when we think about how short our time is, that we have no guarantee we're going to make it across the parking lot, that that should call us to turn to the Lord. And when we think about our future, and there is no escaping God. You remember Psalm 139. There's nowhere we can go where we will escape him. You will confess. You will give homage to the Son. It it will happen. Why not turn to him? And that's, that's God's call to his people. And just, just one or two final thoughts here in Zechariah 1. I told you that the, the overarching tone of the book is one of encouragement. But as I said last week, God's blessings and his encouragement are always predicated, are always founded upon, are always built upon a faithful, broken, contrite people. And so God gives them this word of return, and it hangs in the air for two and a half or three months. You notice the time stamp in 1-1. Eighth month, second year, 1-7. 24th day, 11th month, second year. And so God issues this call, and he lets it just hang in the air for two or three months. Oh, he's got blessings coming along. He's got encouragement coming along. He's got prophetic words to give them. But first, this people needs to be wholly devoted to him. And the same remains true for us. God's got blessings for us. He's got a plan for us. He's got promises for us. But first, before he can do that for us, he's got to get us devoted to him, which is one of the reasons why I've taken two weeks to, to introduce the book and look at this, because before we go forward, I just want to challenge all of us. Are we where we need to be with the Lord? Are we turned towards him or are we turned towards something else? Have, have we ever turned to him? We turn and trust his son. Or have we slowly been drifting? And so in these first two weeks, as we open the book of Zechariah, God's word to his people before the blessings come in, before the prophecies come in, before his words of encouragement come in, is be devoted to him, turn to him, turn from our evil deeds. And I think it's a word that is timely for us as well. Now we're going to call the worship team back up. We're closed with our final song this morning. And I just want to challenge you today and this week to ask yourself that question, are you face-to-face in fellowship with the Lord or have you slowly been turning away? And is there any good reason not to return?